The scripture today is from Luke 6, 43, 45. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does bad trees bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For fig trees are not gathered, for figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good, and the evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. This is the word of the Lord. morning, family of God. In our text of scripture today, Jesus is talking to us about trees and treasure chests. He wants us to become like good trees that bear good fruit. And he wants us to become like good treasure chests. But to really understand what Jesus is talking about, we need to back up for a second and do a little bit of remembering. Because this is the fourth week out of five in which we've been studying a single sermon that Jesus preaches in the latter half of Luke chapter 6 called the Sermon on the Plain. And throughout this sermon, Jesus has been giving his disciples some instructions about how he wants us to live. And these instructions, these commandments from Jesus, he really means for us to obey. And the instructions he's been giving us have been calling us to live in a way that was very unusual in the world 2,000 years ago and that continues to be very unusual in the world today. Jesus is calling his disciples to behave in ways that are radically different than the behavior that characterizes human beings in general. If you've got your Bible open in Luke chapter 6, you can just glance through the chapter with me, but let me remind you some of the things he's been saying to us about how he wants us to live. I'll say them slowly so we can ponder. Jesus said to us as his disciples, Love your enemies. Jesus said, do good to those who hate you. Jesus said, bless those who curse you. When Jesus is teaching us how he really expects us to live our lives as his disciples, he says, give to everyone who asks from you. Jesus said to us, be merciful As your father is merciful. And Jesus said, judge not. Condemn not. Forgive. Now I got a question for you, church family. Is that how most of the world lives? No. 
That is not how most of the world lives. If everybody started living like that this afternoon, all the problems in the world would be solved quickly, wouldn't they? And, and even just and think even about just this, think right, about now, this. right now, if the Pew Research group or whoever goes and does their religious surveys of the world, about one out of three people self-identifies as a Christian, which is somebody who believes in Jesus, the Son of God, and supposedly follows Jesus. But imagine if when we walked out of here today, if one out of three people in the world today loved their enemies, forgave everybody who wronged them, and generously gave to everyone in need that they came into contact with. Wouldn't that dramatically change the world overnight? The truth is, most people do not live this way. But I want us to think about the fact for a moment this morning that faithful saints throughout the ages have, in fact, obeyed the commandments of Jesus. This is not just hypothetical. There are people, disciples of Jesus, who have actually lived this way. And those saints burn like a fire lighting up the dark pages of history. When you find people that are like this, they're just different. And it brings a difference into the world. When I talk about saints, I'm not talking about some sort of super special extra Christians. I'm talking about ordinary Christians like you and me that need forgiveness and grace. But they're really following Jesus. According to the Bible, every Christian is a saint, a holy one, set apart for God. And we're called to live this way. If you were here two weeks ago, you may remember me telling a little story. As we were talking about loving our enemies and turning the other cheek, I told a story about John Lewis. I'm not going to tell that whole story again, but I just want you to remember, this is a man who, during the heat of the civil rights movement, in his early adulthood, early 20s, had a relationship with Jesus that was so real that he was able not only to stand up for justice, but to love his enemies so that even when he was beaten and almost killed, he forgave the people that wronged him and he loved them in a way that led not only to changing bad, unjust laws, but it actually was a witness to Christ that led to the redemption of the person who was hating him such that his persecutor was redeemed and persecutor and persecuted became reconciled. Now, that's unusual, isn't it? But he was just a disciple of Jesus, obeying his master. When people obey the commandments of Jesus, they're like a burning fire lighting up the pages of history, the dark pages. I was thinking this morning about a young woman who a few of you have heard me tell the story about recently, but most of you have not. History knows her as Macrina the Younger. She lived some 17 centuries ago, and she grew up in the region of Cappadocia, which is modern-day Turkey. And she lived uh, at a time of transition. Her grandparents were persecuted for following Jesus. They were exiled. They lost everything for following Jesus. So she had a great heritage of faith, but in the time that intervened between her grandparents' generation and her generation... A lot of things were changing in her culture to where it went from Christians being persecuted to Christianity being tolerated to Christianity being rewarded and honored in the culture. And during that time period, her family was blessed financially. They were very prosperous. 
And so she was born into a family that was actually quite wealthy. She was the oldest sister in a big family. I think there was 10 siblings. And uh, Macrina grew up in this environment. Her family, as they were blessed, um, sometimes blessings can become, become temptations, can't they? And they started living in a way that they were still Christians, but their lifestyle was a little bit more characterized by the world. And one of the symptoms of that is uh, they started acquiring these bond servants, but we would probably be accurate to call slaves. And as she grew up in this huge estate that required slaves to function, her father died. And Macrina, as she heard the gospel from her mother and was inspired by the generations of Christians who had gone before her, her heart was stirred. If I'm a follower of Jesus, I can't live in a way that is easy and comfortable at the expense of other people who are suffering. So first, she convinced her mother, hey, we need to stop living differently where the, the slaves in our household work so much harder than us and, and eat different food and sleep in different quarters. And so they, they all started sleeping in the same kind of quarters, eating the same kind of food and sharing the same kind of work. And then the Holy Spirit began to move her to go further. So she actually convinced her mother and they set all of her slaves free. Remember, her dad has died, so... She is the oldest sister and her mother are now responsible to take care of this estate. But they set their slaves free because that's just how disciples of Jesus are supposed to live. And then they said, it's not right to just set them free and then to turn them loose destitute. Let's take our estate and make it shared property. So this family and now all their former slaves own the property together. What would happen if Christians in the American South lived like that? They set them all free. They started living together. Macrina began to teach and educate her brothers. This is a time in which women were not often given formal education, but her family had a library. That's one thing she didn't give away. She kept the library, but she gave away the knowledge she learned from it. She actually became a great theologian, a great teacher, though she never wrote a book. But she started mentoring her younger brothers and sisters. And as she grew older, she became convinced that God wanted her to live a life of Singleness. At this time, the monastic movement was growing, but many of those monks and nuns were moving out to the desert apart from society. Instead, she started a community of women who lived together and prayed and studied the scripture. And she said, let's do it in the city where we can share the gospel and serve the poor. Her brothers were inspired by her example and started following her example. And though most of us have never heard of Macrina the Younger, a few church historians in the room will know her younger brothers. One of her younger brothers named Gregory says she was the spiritual leader for our family. She taught all of us, which is significant because one of her brothers, Basil of Caesarea, became the greatest Christian leader of his generation. One of her other brothers, Gregory of Nyssa, became one of the greatest Christian theologians of all time. Basil and Gregory were two of the theologians who defended and articulated the doctrine of the Trinity as we have it today. Macrina never held... A government role. She never wrote a book. She never even had a leadership role in the church. She just followed Jesus. We wouldn't even know about her life if her little brother Gregory didn't write a short life of Macrina. And yet, through her life, slavery was ended in her community. The poor were cared for. Orphans and many people who would have died in a famine were provided for. Revival broke out and spread in that area. And we got the doctrine of the Trinity. That's not bad for one life, is it? What I'm trying to say is there are people who have actually obeyed Jesus. And they're like little burning fires lighting up the dark pages of history. 
We could tell more stories, but people like this, they're just ordinary Christians. They need forgiveness and grace like the rest of us do. But they were faithful disciples of Jesus. And because they were faithful disciples of Jesus, they lived in a way that it was very different than the way human beings normally live. Usually people don't give up power and privilege unless they're coerced to do so. One of the things that these Christian role models show us is that what we call human nature a lot is actually subhuman. Track with me for a second. Have you noticed often when people do something really selfish and destructive, they'll be like, I'm only human. And we excuse our friends that way. We don't excuse our enemies that way usually. If somebody does something bad, we're like, well, they're human. Here's something I want you to think about. In Genesis chapter 1, it says a human being is the image of God. So what we're describing as human nature is really sin nature, which causes us to live as subhuman. The fact that we call it human nature tells us there's something wrong inside of us that needs to be fixed. What these saints, and more importantly, what their masters show us, is there's a different way of living, which looks unnatural to the world, but it's actually natural. It's the image of God. Authentic humanity. And when we see one person who does it, It's like a burning fire lighting up the dark pages of history. Jesus is calling us in Luke 6 to live in the world in a way that may feel unnatural to us, but it's actually what authentic human existence looks like. That's what I'm trying to say. And these observations bring us back to the point Jesus is trying to make in today's text. Luke 6, 43 through 45, are cluing us into the fact That though Jesus calls his disciples to behave in a way that is different than the way the rest of the world behaves, Jesus is actually focused on something much deeper than behavior modification. He has bigger goals for us than that. Jesus is actually focused on recreating us from the inside out. He's focused on giving us new hearts. So that we can live as authentic human beings who reflect the image of God. And thus we can become little burning lights, little burning fires that light up the pages, the dark pages of history. Jesus makes this point through a series of metaphors. First, good and bad trees and fruit. Look again at verse 43 and 44. It says this, for no good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is known by its own fruit. Simple metaphor. You don't have to be an arborist to understand this. We had a kid do the gospel project a few years ago who was an arborist. And everywhere we went in Oklahoma City all year long, he'd say, this is that kind of tree, this is that kind of tree. And he'd tell me things about it. It was amazing. I didn't know what he was talking about. But you don't have to know all that. Pop quiz. Do oak trees bear apples? Okay, so you get the point. The good fruit Jesus is talking about, it's clear in context, refers to behaviors, actions. And and in verse 45, he's going to emphasize words, actions and words like loving our enemies, 
doing good to those who hate us, blessing those who curse us, praying for those who abuse us, giving to everyone who asks for us, not judging, not condemning, forgiving. The sort of behaviors he's been calling for. And he says, you don't get that kind of fruit unless you're a different kind of tree. Sometimes as Christians or as disciple makers or as pastors or as parents, we get focused on behavior modification. But if my heart is not changed by God and I'm just trying to live according to these commands, it's kind of like getting a bunch of apples and tying them to an oak tree. Is that a fruitful tree? All we get is a bunch of apples that were alive rotting on an oak tree. Jesus is talking about something deeper. Not just my behaviors need to change. I need to change. Let's keep going. Verse 44 adds to this. The second half of the verse says, For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. Now this is going with the same kind of metaphor, talking about different plants and different specific fruit. But... I think it's more significant here because in Scripture, thorn bushes and brambles have often a symbolic significance. They symbolize the curse that has come on God's good earth because of sin. Whereas figs and grapes frequently symbolize the fruit of a renewed creation that has been rescued from the curse of sin. So, for example, I'll just show you a couple of texts. The world under the curse of sin is described in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 through 18 like this. Cursed is the ground because of you, and pain shall you eat all the days of your life. Thorns thorns, and thistles it shall bring forth for you. So thorns go with the curse, right? But then, here's a text about God renewing his creation. God coming to save us from sin. Micah 4.4 describes God reversing the curse of sin to bring a new creation like this. Everyone will live in peace and prosperity, enjoying their own grapevines and fig trees, for there will be nothing to fear. Doesn't that sound fun, church family? My point here is Jesus is making the same point, root produces fruit. But he's doing it in a significant way, which is suggesting if my soul is still living under the curse of sin, I'm not going to be the, bear the fruit of a new creation. And already beginning to suggest, I need God to recreate me. He continues to drive the point home with the treasure chest analogy. Verse 45. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces, produces good. good. And the evil person, the evil out of the evil treasure... Produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So here, the human heart is being compared to a treasure chest. You open the chest, you reach in, and you pull stuff out, and whatever's inside comes out. It's very simple, isn't it? Inside, maybe there's fool's gold. Maybe there's those little trinkets like the rings and necklaces you, your kids want you to give them four quarters to get when you're going through the grocery store. And each one of those trinkets costs one twentieth of one penny to produce, probably by exploited laborers somewhere. 
And yeah, we're paying a dollar for that, right? And a toy box filled up with those, does that bring a blessing to your house, parents? No, it does not, right? Uh, it's fool's gold. Either you got fool's gold in your heart or maybe you got real diamonds in there. But whatever's in is what comes out. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Words come from the heart, so do actions. In the Bible, the heart is our core place of thinking, feeling, valuing, and loving. What do I love? What do I meditate on? What are the meditations of my heart? What is the treasure of my heart? That means what do I love? What do I value? It's not talking about the biological origin, or, organ. It's talking about your soul. It's talking about the core of who you are. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. The direction of your whole life is going to be set by your heart, which is a problem for us because Jeremiah says the heart is desperately wicked as a result of sin. Every human heart. That's why we say that's human nature, because we've never seen human nature like it's supposed to be. We see human nature born under the curse of sin. So that the image of God is obscured in our lives. Now, if we step back from this and say, what's the point? Here's the point. To live as faithful disciples of Jesus, we need to be recreated by Jesus from the inside out. Discipleship is not about mere behavior modification. It's about a much deeper transformation. We need new Hearts. Now, to help us get the import of what Jesus is saying, I want us to connect these verses with three biblical truths, okay? I'm going to say them to you now, then I'll try to explain each one of them. You might want to jot these down for meditation, but here's the three biblical truths. The kind of deep transformation Jesus is talking about is something that only God can do. We just prayed a moment ago. I look to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. Here's the thing, church. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot save our world. What, what Jesus is helping us to see really is that humanity has a problem that humanity can't solve. The kind of deep transformation Jesus is talking about is something that only God can do. That's the first point. I'll come back to it in a second. Second point. Jesus died and rose again so that we can be not only forgiven, but also renewed, transformed, and recreated. Third point, God does this work of transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit as we believe the gospel of grace and focus our eyes on Jesus. Okay, let me try to explain each of those real quick before we wrap up. First point was this, the kind of transformation Jesus is talking about is something only God can do. In fact, the ministry of Jesus is God fulfilling his ancient promise to come transform his people in a new way as part of his new covenant. Everybody say new covenant. Covenant is a relationship based on promises, like a marriage. When we get married, we make vows, we make promises to establish a secure relationship. God Makes covenant with his people. He does it with Noah. He does it with Abraham. He does it with Moses. He does it with David. But in Jesus, we find a new covenant. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we hear Jesus from the Gospel of Luke saying, This is my blood of the covenant. 
And Jesus is fulfilling something the prophet Jeremiah said was going to happen to you. Uh, I'm going to read you a few verses. If you've got your Bible and you want to flip, you can. This is Jeremiah chapter 31. I'm going to start in verse 31. Listen to this ancient prophecy. This is Jeremiah, the same guy who told us that because of sin, every human being is born with a heart that is desperately wicked. But then he goes on to say this. Behold, the days are coming. So he's pointing to a future event from his perspective. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Everybody say new covenant. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. The old covenant was good, but the new covenant is much better. If you don't know about that, go read Leviticus and then read Hebrews. The new covenant is much better. God is doing a new thing. It says, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, you hear the marriage relationship? God is binding himself to us in love as his bride. And in the old covenant... Israel rebelled against him over and over, but he's saying he's going to make a new covenant. And he describes it like this. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is verse 33, Jeremiah 31, verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their their hearts. That's the part I want you to hear. Part of the new covenant is that God, by his Holy Spirit, is going to do a new work in our hearts. The way the prophet Ezekiel describes this, when the new covenant comes, he's going to take our heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. He's going to change how we think at the core of who we are. He's going to change what we value at the core of who we are. Jeremiah goes on to say, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The new covenant is God in Christ coming near. Jesus is God coming near to forgive our sins through his death and resurrection. But not just that, to teach us to know God and to write his word down in our hearts. It's about a new heart. That's the first point. We need God to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. But then we got to say this. Jesus died and rose again, not only so that we can be forgiven, but also so we can be renewed, transformed and recreated. And I think this is something that probably if I ask us the right questions, I could get any of us in this room to give the right answers. But I think at a deeper level, this is one of the places that keeps Christians stuck in immaturity because we haven't really, really, really got this. Jesus died on the cross and rose again, not only so we can be forgiven, but also so we can be renewed, transformed, and recreated. Some of y'all know the word enough that you can help me finish this verse. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a... Look at that. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has what? The old has passed away. The old is gone. The new has come. It's about recreation. Today, 
In a few minutes, we're going to have a baptism right back here. It's going to be awesome. I'm so excited about what God's doing in Mondo's life. And we've got several other youth queued up. Can we just give praise to the Lord for what he's doing in their lives? And as you see Jordan Hutchings and Mondo get into that water and, and see this baptism happen, I want you to think about these words from Romans, chapter 6, verse 3 through 4. Baptism, this public expression of faith in Jesus, a, co- a sign of the covenant, like a wedding ring, a visible sign of a covenant relationship. What does it represent? It represents a lot of things, but one of the most important things is described in Romans 6, verses 3 through 4. It says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness. Life. What does that mean? It means when a person goes into the water, that represents death. Don't worry, Mondo. Jordan's going to pull you out of there. But when they go into the water, that represents death. It represents dying with Jesus. What's dying? The, the sinful nature that used to dominate my heart. God is killing it. The old false humanity that obscured the beautiful image of God, that hid the light. That's what's being killed. Not that our temptations go away. Anybody want to testify you still get tempted to do bad stuff all the time? But it's saying if you're in Christ, those things no longer have dominion over you. Their power to control your life is broken. And then you rise to walk in newness of life. One day we're going to have resurrected bodies with Jesus. But if you trusted in Christ, you've already begun to participate in that resurrection. He's given you a new heart, a new creation. Now, I think most of you, if you've been Christians, you've been in church for a while, the things that I'm saying, you're like, yeah, 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 I'm tracking with you. But I, I do think that we need some help here because, friends, here's what I'm trying to say. The good news of the gospel is this. It's not just that your sins are forgiven. It's that you don't have to live like a fool anymore. What if we put that positively? It's not just that your sins are forgiven so that when you die, you can go to a good place. Now, that would be plenty. If, if the whole news was this. I'm going to forgive your sins if you trust in Jesus so that then after you wallow around like a fool for however many years, I'll take you to heaven to be with God. That would be enough to praise Jesus about, wouldn't it? That's plenty of good news. But what we're being told is, no, there's something deeper. There's something better here. You've actually been raised to walk in newness of life. The Holy Spirit wants to make you a little fire that lights up the dark pages of history. That's what it means. Let me tell you a sincere question that I've been asked multiple times by multiple different people as a pastor every year. I love sincere questions. And here's a sincere question that I've been asked. It especially comes after we talk about the gospel of grace and the forgiveness of sins and justification by grace through faith. People will say, okay, I'm going to be real with you. If we're forgiven and we could go to heaven by grace, we don't have to do anything to earn that then why don't I just believe in Jesus and keep living the way that I want to live? What's the point? Now, that, be, that question is an honest, sincere question when people ask it, and I love it. But it's also a teaching opportunity because it betrays that there's still a lot of lies we're believing. It's like saying, if I could be forgiven and then still walk around like a fool, destroying myself and others... 
Why would I want to walk around like a living person that brings joy to the world? Right? Here's the thing. Sin does not make us free. Sin destroys. And the grace of the gospel is not only a grace of forgiveness, it's a grace of renewal. So everybody say, new creation. Now finally, how does this work? God does this work of transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit as we believe the gospel of grace and focus our eyes on Jesus. Um, I want to put one more verse on the screen for you to look at. You can also open your Bibles to it. 2 Corinthians three seventeen through 18. This is a powerful text of scripture. And it says so much about how the Christian life works. That work of renewal happens when you trust in Christ. If you're here today and you feel powerless over sin, you feel like you can't stop doing self-destructive behaviors, that means step one is to become a Christian. Trust in Jesus. Be baptized. But then there's an ongoing work of transformation the Lord wants to do us in our life. And here's how it's described. Verse 17 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit. We've got some Trinity theology here. It's talking about the Holy Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. Now, here's what you need to understand, church. Real freedom does not mean being able to do whatever destructive thing I want. Real freedom means being able to be what God created me to be. It means the image of God restored. The Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Being able to live as an authentic human being, a little fire that shines light in the dark pages of history. And then Paul goes on to describe how this works. I can't explain it all, but let's look at it real quick. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. If you go study it in context, Paul is saying when we trust in Christ, a veil is removed so that when we read the Bible, we see Jesus. Beholding the glory of the Lord means looking at Jesus. So everybody say, look at Jesus. We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. Oh, that's the word. Everybody say image. Human beings are created to be the image of God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, which means not only that he reveals to us what the transcendent God is like, but also that he's the prototype of authentic humanity. He's true God and true man. And as we gaze at him, we're being transformed To become like him, transformed in the same image, to be like Jesus from one degree of glory to another. So it's a process. Day by day, says this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We put those pieces together. Here's what it's saying is, when you trust in Jesus Christ, God gives you a new heart. You're a new creation. But then every day, that work of transformation continues. If you want to see the fruit come out of your life that was described in the lives of people like John Lewis or McCrean the Younger... The the solution is not try to squeeze apples out of an oak tree. The solution is remember that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again. Trust in Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Love Jesus. Worship Jesus. Follow Jesus. And as you do that, day by day, the the beauty of Jesus and the gospel of grace will take root in your heart. And the Holy Spirit will do a work so that little by little... You just start to trust him and you just start to love him. And as you love him, you see all people in him. And before long, you actually want to love your enemies. You want to do good to those who hate you. You want to bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Who wants to be like Jesus when you grow up? 
Last week, Chauncey talked to us about Luke 6.40. Jesus said this, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Today, Jesus is adding on that thought, saying, Here's how it works. As you follow me, I'm going to make you a good tree. I'm going to put good treasure in your heart. And we receive that by fixing our eyes on Christ. Now, here's what I want you to do. We're about to sing two songs. And after, though that's going to be a response to God's word and worship. And worship. And, and after we sing, those, after two we sing songs, those two songs, we're about to celebrate a baptism, which means in a, in a minute there's going to be a lot of chaos that happens. Because when we sing this last song, I'm going to ask parents to go get your kids from Children's Church so that the kids and the Children's Church workers can come in here to celebrate baptism. Okay? And that's going to be exciting. We're going to do it together. But before chaos breaks loose, we need to be still in the presence of the Lord. Amen? Okay, so everybody stand up with me for a second. Before I dismiss you, I want us to hear this word from Jesus. I want you to hear this word from Jesus. The gospel of grace declares not only that your sins can be forgiven, but anybody who trusts in him is a new creation. And the Holy Spirit wants to do an ongoing work in your heart to make you new from the inside out. So I'm going to invite you to close your eyes. Put your hands in a posture of surrender before the Lord, receiving his grace. And I'm just going to ask you to pray. First thing I want you to do is just, in your mind, imagine the face of Jesus. The Lord who died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave. Imagine his face. What the word has said is this. If you want to be a new kind of tree that bears a new kind of fruit, look at Jesus and trust him. So in your heart, whether this is the first time you've prayed this or the 10,000th time, I want you to just pray, Jesus, I trust you. I'm going to invite you to pray, Jesus, forgive my sins. Tell him that you love him. Say, Jesus, you're my Lord. I want you to invite Jesus to show you where there's some bad treasure in your heart that needs to be replaced with good treasure. His conviction is never about rejection or condemnation. It's just his love inviting you to be free. Ask him to to show you where is there places where he's calling you to deeper freedom. Jesus, you're the Lord, and it's your grace that's our only hope. I'm asking that you would help us now. Holy Spirit, help us now to behold the glory of the Lord, to trust him and be transformed to be more like him. Lord, I'm asking that you would do a supernatural work, that we would be a people who actually obey the commandments of Jesus so that we look like him in the way that we love, the way we serve, the way we give, the way we forgive the way we trust. So that each of us as individuals and that our church as a community would be a little light, a flame with the Holy Spirit of God that brings light and hope 
to a dark world in a way that causes people to glorify the Lord and put their trust in you. Our God, we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.